This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. Looked at God, we've looked at Jesus, we've looked at Christ. Last week, Pastor Melissa uh, looked at the afterlife, and didn't she do a fantastic job on the afterlife? Connected to that is this week's word, and that is the word salvation. Arguably, there is no more central word to the Christian faith than the word salvation. That word that describes the act of saving, delivering, protecting, preserving something or someone from something or someone. You know what saving or salvation means. So let me just go right to the crux of the matter and say some things today that I have said in bits and starts, in bits and pieces and fits and starts, rather, many times, but I want to put this together today in one package, hopefully that it can be captured and we will be able, if somebody asks us a question about how we feel about salvation, we could just give them this podcast, this video, and say, well, this is at least a primer that begins the conversation. If I were allowed one story from the Bible, one story from the Bible to explain the story of salvation, or as biblical scholars call it, salvation history, that profound thread that weaves its way from Genesis to Revelation in our Bible. If I were headed off to an island and I could not take a Bible, but I were allowed to take just one story from the pages of Scripture to explain the story of salvation, to share the good news, to capture what I believe is the ultimate good news of God's love, our deliverance from fear. Hebrews 2 said that God came in Christ to deliver us from the fear of death. 1 John 4 says that love when it's completed, love when it's matured, Now, the 8th verse said that God is love. And the 18th verse said when that love finds fruition, when we really make peace with God and it settles into our heart, that love casts out all fear. It casts out all fear. If I could take one story with me that would explain the good news of God's love and our deliverance from fear, the story that could explain what's right and wrong in the world, And I'm talking about the world without us, outside of us, and the world within us. One story to offer a remedy. The remedy for war, again, amongst the nations, and the remedy for war within our own souls. If I had one story to tell the story of salvation, it would be the Bible's first story. Found in Genesis, the first chapter second chapter, and third chapter. I believe deeply in John 6, 38 through 39, that Jesus was saying you really don't have to have John 6, 38 through 39, or John's gospel for that matter, because Jesus said the Hebrew scriptures testify of me. And when he resurrected in Luke 24, the Bible says that he preached his death, burial, and resurrection fully to them from Moses and the prophets. So if the Bible of the Old Testament was sufficient for Jesus, I'm saying that in its etiology, that original story, Genesis 1 through 3, 
we have sufficient message to tell the gospel. Not just sufficient, but I think it even gives us an exhaustive take if we delve into it with the Holy Spirit's help. So let's start with this story, and then I'm going to try to get to the second story. We'll see how it goes. Genesis 1, verse 27. Open your minds, open your hearts, and think with me. This is important stuff, salvation. All right, looking at the 27th verse. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, now that's a, it's an important phrase, imago Dei in Latin, the image of God. We see that same phrase again later in what we refer to as the New Testament text, and that phrase, image of God, is referring to who in the New Testament text? Jesus. Jesus is referred to as the express image of God. Paul and the writer of Hebrews use that phrase to describe Jesus. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The second chapter, the 17th verse, God gives them an important instruction that we're most of us familiar with. Look at the 17th verse. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God says, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, remember that, in the day you eat of it, you shall die. Now remember, they ate the fruit, and the Bible said they lived another 900 years. In the day that you eat of it, you will die. Look at the 25th verse of the same chapter. And the man and his wife, you know chapter 3 is the story of the fall, So before sin, before frailty, before brokenness, the description of human beings was that they were made in the image of God and then the second description of their completeness, their wholeness. You want a definition of wholeness, a definition of human wholeness? And the man and his wife were both naked, notice this, and they were not, everybody say it with me, ashamed. They were not a shame. It's interesting and important to note that they are not described as naked and not sinful. Their completeness was described as the absence of shamefulness, unworthiness, worthlessness. And the third chapter begins, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, it's very important what God said, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it. God said, if we did, we would die. But the serpent said to the woman, you won't die. Now, underneath that plain statement, you will not die. Remember, the woman, the last thing was, that was said was the woman said, God said, we will die. 
The next words were the words of the serpent, you will not die. So underneath those words is a statement about God, isn't there? And that statement is, God is a liar. If God is a liar, then God cannot be trusted. You will not die. God is a liar, and you are the lied to. You are being abused. You are being hoodwinked. You are being tricked. So what is at stake here is not immediately in the tree. What is at stake here is the character of God, right? What's being assaulted here, notice the campaign is not first and foremost, this is really good fruit. The campaign is first and foremost, God's a liar, cannot be trusted, does not have your best interest at heart. God is not the lover. If God's not the lover, then you're not the loved. But the serpent goes on to explain this completely. The serpent says, you will not die for. Here's why you won't die. God knows. God knows something that you don't know. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and that'll be a good thing. And you will be like God. Go back. You will be like God. You'll be like God in every way. And you'll know good and evil. So the serpent essentially says, not only will you not die, you'll live like you've never lived before. You can trust me on that. And the woman now cast a wary eye toward God. The woman now experiences something that all of us have experienced. Have you ever been in a relationship, not just a romantic relationship, a familial relationship, a friendship? Have you ever been in a relationship where you thought you were loved, cared for, looked after, and you're just bebopping along with that understanding completely understood and you're secure in it? And then you find out through happenstance, not necessarily investigation, but you are sideswiped by the reality that what you thought, the disposition you thought you were held in by the other, the reality is actually the exact opposite of that. Now, admittedly, that can make you very angry toward the person who has betrayed you. But you also know, if you're not careful, it can make you feel a certain way about yourself, can it? It can make you feel pretty crummy. It can make you feel like a fool. It can make you feel the exact opposite of how you felt, loved, cared for, protected only to find out that it's the exact opposite. The first attack on Eve's soul was not, that's a really good fruit to eat. The first attack on her soul is you are not the beloved of God.
God is not lover, and you are not beloved. And Eve's place in the world changed before she ever ate the fruit. And now Eve felt shame, embarrassment. You ever been there? What a fool. I've been walking around this tree honoring this code, looking toward heaven with grateful thoughts, only to find out that he's nothing but a selfish hoarder of the good. What a fool. Verse 6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, you notice that? She didn't see the tree that way until she saw herself that way. And the way that I'm talking about as the one not loved. As long as God was the lover and she was the loved, how did she see the tree? Bad. But when God was no longer the lover and she was no longer the loved, the Bible says, some translations say, then. And that's an important word, then. Only then did she see the fruit differently. Everything looks different when you look different. And you look different when God looks different. So then she saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired, and it would make her wise. She had never seen it that way her whole life. And then she took of its fruit, and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband, because shame and sin are viral in nature, and they always spread. Shamed People shame people. Hurt people hurt people. Sinning people sin against people. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Look at the next verse. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Interesting. The frailty was revealed not in their nakedness, but in their knowledge of their nakedness. Before they were naked and they weren't ashamed, but now they are naked and they are aware of their nakedness and they feel shame. So interesting. Matthew may delve into some of this tonight, but so interesting. They saw the fruit with their eye. They picked it with their hand. They ate it with their mouth. They digested it with their belly. And yet when the shame hit, it localized in their sexuality. It says something in that wise tale that we carry shame in our bodies. Specifically, we carry a lot of shame in our sexuality. The Bible says they were aware they were naked. They were aware that they were uncovered. Before, they were uncovered. And so the whole issue of covering, in fancy terms, we call it propitiation in the Bible, where things have to be covered. The whole matter of covering now begins. They were 
uncovered and not ashamed. Now they're uncovered and ashamed. Now they need layers. And they sewed fig leaves together. And they made loincloths for themselves. They didn't cover their whole body, just a part. Fig leaves. A clothing that has to be replaced every so often. Because fig leaves are like any leaf, botanical material. They decompose and you have to get more leaves. And those leaves become insufficient. You have to get more leaves. And you're always bringing new coverings to yourself because these kinds of coverings, the coverings we make for ourselves, they never last. As a matter of fact, David lifted his voice and said, when I covered my own stuff, my soul dried up, my bones withered inside of me. Nina and I were spending some time yesterday just convalescing and we were kicked back on Stan Jr.'s big king-size bed and she was watching a show, and I said, what are you watching? She's nine years old. I said, what are you watching? We guard it pretty close, you know. We said, what are you watching? She said, I'm watching a new show. I said, what is it? She said, it's called Love, Lust, or Run. I said, may I see my phone? It's not as bad as it sounds. As a matter of fact, it's not bad at all. Stacy London, who used to have the show What Not to Wear, now has another show called Love, Lust, or Run on TLC. She's a clothier. She does makeovers. On this particular show, she does make-unders because the people she deals with are most generally over the top in the way they have to cover themselves. And yesterday, Nina and I watched one show that was of particular interest to her, and it started out funny, but for Lee and it went sad in a hurry because I get the gist of the show. The show is not just about clothing. It's about our soul. And the show that Nina showed me was a young lady that came in so over the top with her hair, her makeup, her dress. It was amazing. It was a, a carnival of sorts. And when Stacy asked her, where did this motif come from? She said, it's a bit of the 40s, a bit of the 60s with a little bit of Lucille Ball and a little bit of punk rock thrown in sideways, shake it all up, and this is what you get. And she was right. <laughs> but past the humor comes the tears. Because what they ask the person to do is take off all the layers. And it's painful. All the fig leaves begin to come off. And as the fig leaves are stripped off, you wonder if there aren't only cameramen and grips, but you wonder, surely there's got to be therapists and pastors nearby. Because this is not about clothing, this is about soul. And finally, the makeup comes off, the many layers, the clothes, the hair, everything comes off, and the person is left with only a robe around their indignity and what they generally greatly experience as a shame. The person in that stripped-down version has a camera cast on them, and you can tell that it's incredibly, terribly painful for them, knowing that millions are seeing them the way they can't even bear to see themselves. And then the questions come, how do you feel? And I won't even begin to tell you what this woman said about herself. Things too harsh, I feel it indecent to even say, to repeat. Stacy said, well, how did you feel about yourself when you had all of that 
stuff on. Pretty good, she said. And then the cruelest of cruel, they rip the Band-Aid off and they make the person sit down and they go to the street and they ask 17 decent, normal people, look at a picture of this person and all of their regalia and tell us, do you love it? Do you lust after it? Or would you run? 17 people were asked about this look that took this young girl two hours every morning to perform. One of them said they loved it. No man, no woman said they lusted for it. 16 said we would run. And she didn't just get the final statistics. She had to sit there and listen to what the people said. Fig leaves. Fig leaves. Decaying ways that we cover ourselves. Resumes. Golf games. Good jobs. Second homes. New cars. Bubbly personalities. And there she sat with no <coughs> mascara, barely able to look at the camera. Deconstruction, reconstruction. And I would say of Stacy, I don't know all of her motives, but she seemed more pastor than clothier. So then, I've said things like this before. But it was striking to me. Nina wants to go with me to a wedding. So she puts on her dress. And on the way to the wedding. She has her little dress on. And I look over at her sitting beside me. And sticking out from underneath the dress. Her blue jean shorts. <laughs> There's a lot in that. But not the least of which is I said. Why do you have those on? She said. I just want to be ready for whatever. Pastor's children pay some price. Part of the price is they become their father's sermon material, and we have to know when with discretion to cut that off. She said to me yesterday, as we ride, she says, I'm wider. Never heard that one. I'm wider than the other girls. I said, what do you mean, sis? And she said, I don't know. I just am bigger. Go back to the text, Rachel. What I wanted to say is, no, you're not, but maybe she is. What I wanted to say was, no, 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 you're the prettiest girl in the class. But that's just replacing fig leaves with fig leaves, isn't it? Nothing wrong with pretty, but prettiest? Because she didn't say she was wide, she said she was wider. You get the difference? Comparison. And the fig leaves begin. 
And if you want to go on a historical search that reconstructs Eden and who was the real Eve, just look at the little girl that lives down the hall from you. That's Eve. That's the brilliance of the biblical story. And they made loincloths for themselves futilely of things that would decompose. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. And the story is very clear that the big problem here is not sin. It's a problem and it's real and every one of us know how real it is. But it's not the big problem. The primal problem, say it with me, is shame. Genesis 3 tells a story of sin. Yes, it does. But before it tells the story of sin, it tells the story of shame. You're not loved. You're not enough. It's playing you. You don't have worth. Then she saw. The whole world looks different when you're not the beloved. The whole world looks different when God's not the lover. The whole world becomes that that will fill the gap that can only be filled by the truth of your belovedness. And when, and when the food goes down inside, that sin is like acid because it just bores the holes of shame out even bigger in the bucket of your soul. And now shame leads to sin and sin leads to shame. I missed that first part. All my life I thought the story was don't sin and you won't have shame. Everything's about sin. If you sin, you'll have shame. That's not what the story says. The story says they sinned, but you know where the sin came from? Shame. And then after they sin. It poured fuel under the fire of their shame. And watch this. You want to see a good definition of shame? You want to see the story of humanity? Here it is. This is the journey of our soul. When they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, you know what would have been the whole and the healthy response? We are broken. We have messed up. Here comes God. I need you like I've never needed you before. Philip Yancey, whose wife worked in Chicago streets as a social worker, came across a young lady. Her life had been given to prostitution. His wife was trying to help her. This young lady had fallen so deep into soul disrepair that in her prostitution, she had sold a child. Yancey said is his wife, God bless social workers in this world. God bless those who come holistically looking at systems, families and economic systems and broader pictures than just the individual as his wife sought to reconstruct some semblance of facility and haven where this, little, this young woman could begin to reconstruct. Steve Phillips said, I thought I would throw in my pastoral ministerial offer. And he said, I looked at her and said, and we'd love to have you at church. And he said her response was almost as if she'd been electrocuted. She looked at him and said, church, why would I go to church? I already feel bad enough. Shame. Shame is 
I have made a mistake. Shame is I have been broken. Shame is in my brokenness I hear God coming and when you mix together my real brokenness with God's presence, it creates fear. When you take my reality and put it in God's presence, shame says run as hard as you can in the opposite direction. Her great problem wasn't the tree or what the fruit was. Her great problem was something sunk into her soul that told her she was whiter, she was less, she was poorer. She wasn't as good. Something bored a hole straight through her spirit that said, you have no worth. And she looked around and saw a tree and that could make her wise, that could make her pretty. Those clothes could make me acceptable. That job could make me impressive. She saw a tree. She saw a tree. And the most dangerous part wasn't the fig that she ate we call sin. The most dangerous part was the leaves of that tree that she covered her shame with. Why in the world haven't we seen that the leaves were as devastating at least as the fruit? Maybe more so. We've spent 2,000 years as a Christian church talking about that fruit. We need to spend 2,000 years talking about those leaves. How about that? for good biblical interpretation. They heard the sound of the Lord coming and the sound of God's presence and the reality of their brokenness caused them church why in the world And the Bible says that he called to them. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, look at this, where are you? And the man responded, I heard the sound of your footsteps. Now this tells you something about the sound of his voice. Because if the footsteps of God made the man hide, what was it about the voice of God that made him? I'm over here. It tells you something about the tone of the voice. Because if behind that tree he would have heard, Adam, where are you? What would he have done, Antonio? He would have crouched further. Adam, you better get out here right now. Holiness patrol. Holiness patrol has arrived in the garden. But Adam heard something that drew him out, and that something must have sounded like this. Adam? Boy, where are you? And the sound 
of the shepherd's voice causes him to peek out from behind the tree. Maybe even the tree that he'd eaten from. Tree as fruit maker was not nearly as devastating as tree as hiding place. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. And it was there that God must have wept. Adam said, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, oh. And I look at Eve and I say, why do you think? Why on Saturday afternoon, dressed in a pretty little dress with blue jeans underneath, why? What makes a little girl driving down the road with a pretty dress on and blue jeans under ready to play? Hadn't seen her daddy in five days. I've been down in Marco Island at a minister's retreat. What makes her look out the window and say, I'm wider. And I pull the car over into a church parking lot of all places. And I say, why do you think that, sissy? And she said, look at me. And I said, I am. And I don't want to give her more fig leaves. So I think, what do I say? Sissy, you're just right. You are the beloved. And I'm late for the wedding, and the wedding coordinator's calling me. But I got business because I got a little girl. She hasn't even eaten the fruit yet. Why have we been talking about original sin? Gabe, why hadn't we been talking about original shame? She hasn't found bulimia yet. She hasn't found anorexia yet. She hasn't found promiscuity yet. But oh, she's found shame. Why are we talking about original sin? My God. Somebody needs to read the story again. It's original shame. You get original shame right. And sin will take care of itself. You get original shame wrong. And devastation is on its way. And the serpent said, what did God say? He told me not to eat. <laughs> I bet he told you you're the beloved of God, didn't he? I've... And the mean kid on the bus will say, you are wider. And that little girl will say, my dad told me that I was just right. And he'll look at her and say, that's what dads say. And the heart of God breaks and says, who told you? Have you eaten? You think God didn't know? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you? 
not to eat. The Bible goes on to say that what happened to them was exactly what God said would happen to them. Their eyes would be open. Satan really hadn't lied. If you investigate, Satan technically, from a doctrinal standpoint, said exactly the truth. The only difference and the ultimate lie was in the tone of his voice. There's more theology and doctrine, Matt, in tone than there is in words. Verse 21 of this chapter. And the Lord God made garments of skin for the man and for his wife. I cannot put that little nine-year-old girl back in a four-year-old soul perfectly. The cat's out of the bag now. But I cannot let her get lost in fig leaves and shame. And so the Lord takes the pitiful ways we cover ourselves. You know, those resumes, those things that make us successful, those. The Lord takes their fig leaves off. And I want you to notice something. When he took their fig leaves off, I'm sure they blushed, but he didn't. Because the covering never has been for God. The propitiation and the covering has always been for us. Somehow we constructed a story that God was so holy that he couldn't be with us in our sin. Somehow we built a story that says they sinned and they showed up looking for God and said, where are you? And God said, I can't come down there because you're uncovered sinful and I can't be with you. Haven't you read the Bible? That's not the story. The story does not begin with God needing us to cover. God didn't say from the heavens, I'll come down as soon as you kill an animal and either smear the blood or put the skins on you and cover yourselves. From the very beginning, you want to know the truth of a doctrine? Go back to the beginning, the etiology, the first story. He takes their fig leaves off. He strips down the makeup and the little bit of 40s and the little bit of 60s, the resume, the punk rock mixed in, the great personality. He strips it all off because he knows how those things decay and have to be replaced, and it takes more and more. And as they blush, he looks at them, and he knows that he will never get them perfectly back in the garden. Not here, not now. So an animal dies. But please hear me, that animal didn't die to cover their sin. 1 Peter 4 and 8, Proverbs 12 and 10, get it right. Love covers a multitude of sin. And that's all you need to cover sin. And God's got plenty of it to go around. But a first animal dies and their soul has to be covered and the animal dies for shame. And he covers their shame. The mediating work of God's love is not to talk God into being capable of loving us. The mediating work of God's love with all of its propitiation, covering, and arbitration is to talk us into accepting the full beloved gift that God has given us. 
I want Lauren to come and sing a little song that is an incredible song written by a young man named Brady Toops. <clears throat> and time fails me today to tell you the story of a prodigal, but most of you know it. I'll tell it to you another time. But please hear me. The prodigal was born a child of the father, could not appropriate it, and driven by shame, he made his way until finally he ended in a hog pen. We start the story of identity there and say that he was this unworthy, broken human being that needed to come to God. No, no, no. That boy needed to go to the hog pen because he was a child of the father but couldn't sense it. And what he couldn't appropriate in the father's house, he took a journey of shame. And yes, it led to sin. That's called the hog pen. But in the middle of the sin, he woke up and he came to himself and said, I want to go home. But as he went home, he rehearsed the story. I'm not worthy. Just make me a slave. I have lost all worth and there's nothing you can do. All those self-deprecating ways that we laugh at ourselves before somebody else tells the joke. I know he's going to say I'm unworthy. I know he's going to say I'm nothing but a dog and a slave to him. So I'm going to preempt it and I'm going to say, listen, here's my praise song. I'm not worthy. Just make me a slave. I don't deserve anything. I've ruined it by the way I lived. And as he's rehearsing the story, he hears something and he looks up and here comes an old peg-legged dad running down the road with his skirt hiked up. And as the dad gets there, the boy winces and contact is made, but instead of blows berating, blows of shame, love covers a multitude of hog pen. And the boy does what we do. He pushes the arms away because the presence of God mixed with my brokenness yields fear and shame. And he pushes it away and underneath the blows, William Blake's little black boy said, we are put here a little while to endure the beams of love. And under the blows, it's why when people compliment us, we say, oh shoot, yeah, no. The beams of love are too much because they are so dissonant with what we know in our own soul. Oh, if you knew me, you wouldn't be saying that. It's what made my little sister, as a little Pentecostal girl in a dress. It sure is a pretty dress, Sherlyn. Oh, we bought this at a rummage sale. Covers him. And the prodigal says, I'm not worthy of this. This has got to be a cruel joke, so I'm going to barter with you now before the other foot falls. Make me a slave. Just make me a slave, because I know I've lost my identity. One that I never really had. And the father holds that boy and looks over his shoulder and says, Quickly, quickly.
quickly before he says one more bad thing about himself. Quickly. Get a ring. Get a robe. Kill a fatted calf. And one more time an animal dies. But it's not to satisfy the holiness of the father's heart. It is to cover the shame of this boy. Kill a calf. Kill an animal. Throw a party. Love's already covered the sin. The animal dies to cover the shame. So, if then there is a gospel, if then there is a good news, a story of salvation, Savior, and saved, then it is to proclaim to every woman, every man, every boy, every girl, every elder brother who stayed home and thought himself a slave, and every prodigal girl who left believing the same. If then there is a gospel, it is to proclaim to them that they were and always have been and always will be the beloved of God. Tell them that if there is a salvation, it is that they might understand they were born safe, sheltered in the arms of God. Tell them their prodigal journey has not cost them their identity as a child of God. Tell them nothing they could ever do could undo who they are. Tell them salvation is not becoming something they aren't, but awakening to the realization, the awareness of who they have always been and unchangeably always will be. If then there is a gospel, tell them to come home. Come home from the hog pen. Come home from the bedroom next to the father's elder brother. Come home. Tell them that if there is salvation, that it is that they become again as a little child. Not the nine-year-old who thinks she's whiter, but the four-year-old who danced naked, even if the whole world were looking. Tell them to become that little child, the one they were before they left home and became estranged from the father, the mother, their family, even themselves. If then there is a gospel and if there is something called salvation that Christ offers, tell them that love and grace and mercy and forgiveness were already, were already given before they were born. Tell them repentance is simply changing their mind about who God is and who they are. Tell them repentance changes only their mind. Tell them they don't have to change God's mind. His mind never has changed. Tell them that to confess Jesus as Savior is to confess through the God-man, through the divine flesh, through the crucified one. To confess Jesus is to confess their own inseparable union with God through their elder brother. Tell them that baptism does not make them the beloved child of God. It simply proclaims it. Tell them to come home to their heart where God has lived Tell them that if God can live in their heart, Matthew, they can too.
I mentioned your name and I saw him smile Sitting on the front porch waiting Sitting on the front porch waiting Every little one to him belongs You might be weak but he is strong Sitting on the front porch waiting Sitting on the front porch waiting Sitting on the front porch waving home So come on home Come on home Though you left he couldn't forget So come on home Right down to the gates of hell He's sitting on the front porch waiting He's sitting on the front porch waiting But mercy's reach is within your grasp You'll find it where you found it last He's sitting on the front porch waiting He's sitting on the front porch waiting He's sitting on the front porch waving home prodigal. My literary pastor, Henry Nowen, went to Russia, a broken, gay, Catholic priest who could never speak those words within his church, even to himself. He lived his life running to the mailbox performing in books and oration that somebody might tell him he was beloved, that he had worth. His heart broken, no peace in his soul. Those who knew Henry said he was the most tormented fellow you ever met. And yet his books changed my life. 
and I realize now his books on God's love changed my life at the expense of his own soul because the high octane fuel that drove him, Mark, was his own angst, his own desire so desperately to believe that he was beloved. And so in St. Petersburg, he set before the real return of the prodigal. For hours on end, he said until finally he screamed out in the depths of his soul, I want to come home. One biographer said, Henry wrote 43 books about the love of God he could never live. He lived a book with his life he could never write. Church, why would I go there? I already feel bad enough. Oh, we got to do better. And he said it was at that moment when I cried, I want to come home, that I saw the picture of the old man standing at the door of my heart. That repressed, broken, shamed, gay heart of a Catholic priest. 2,000 years of tradition and the winds of culture against it. And he said, he smiled at me and said, come home, Henry. And I screamed at him, I cannot come home. I cannot live there. I've been running from my heart and my soul my whole life. And God smiled and said, Henry, I'm God. If I can live here, you can too. Come home. That, brothers and sisters, is good news. And that's why we repent, and that's why we believe, and that's why we baptize, because we have good news. And I pray that even this week, you will come a little more home. Come home to the place where God lives, in the center of your soul. Can you say amen? amen. Be good to one another, but especially this week, be good to yourself.